what's going on today? That's what the doctor asked when he entered the exam room. The guy was sitting there and he said, Doc, it's my memory. I just don't remember things like I used to. The doctor asked him, how long has this problem been going on? The man looked puzzled and he said, what problem, Doc? Yeah, thanks for the laugh. Yeah, remembering and forgetting. Sometimes we think that, yeah, that is a result of getting old, but sometimes we think that's just a result of getting old. But it's also a, a choice that we make by our power of our will to remember and to forget. And in our text today, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth and he's telling them they need to live in a way where they can act on truth and what's happened in someone's life rather than holding that against this person. So in one way, just forget the offense because he's repented and he's moved on. Let's move on. And so let's look at this together in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. I'll read it for us. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that instructs us, guides us, teaches us how to conduct ourselves in very practical ways as we desire to reflect you to those we come in contact with. God, help us to remember that this reflecting you is not just when we're around other Christians, we're at church, but God, as we go out from here, as we live our lives and do the things that you've given us to do, God, help us to remember that we are a reflection of you. And God, I pray that you will help us to be an accurate reflection. And God, I pray that you will just use your word to train us up in godliness. In your name we pray, amen. As we mentioned earlier in the announcements, we have Phil by Night coming soon. And I was going through some old pictures of Phil by Night and came across this little gem here. This was, uh, you may remember, go ahead and put that on the screen if you have that. Wait, waiting for it here. Here we go. There we go. Uh, big sin, little sin. All right, that was many years ago. But uh, Charlie Umfrick there, big sin, and Harrison definitely a lot smaller, little sin. And I, I just uh, as I was preparing the sermon, it made me think of that moment as I saw that picture and thinking about how that we really do categorize our sins, right? We think of lists of sins, and these are worse, and these are not as bad. These are small, these are big. And I think for most of us, if I ask you to just go ahead and jot down the list of really terrible, awful sins, probably not on the top of your list or even near the top of your list would be this idea of unwilling to forgive someone. But according to our text today, to withhold forgiveness and comfort to a person who is sorry and repents is to be outwitted by Satan, is to be de deceived by Satan. Look at it again, verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So we see that one of Satan's strategies 
is to convince us to withhold forgiveness from someone who has a, is repentant and we refuse to have a spirit of forgiveness for that person. And that's being outwitted, fooled by Satan. And it opens up the entire church, not just for us individually, but the entire church to Satan's mischief, to his work among us. So Satan's agenda. What is his agenda? Satan works, and the scripture is clear. It tells us how Satan works. He lies, he distorts, he accuses. And so not only does he speak what is false, he hides what is true. We see this, and we'll see it in a few weeks in chapter 4, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, where it refers to Satan as the God of this world, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so he blinds people's eyes through distractions, through temptations, to the glories of Christ. Now, once we've placed our faith in Jesus, Satan knows that he's lost the most important battle there. But Satan's goal continues to be to convince the believers to hide the light of the gospel in their life so that they won't reflect Jesus and won't allow Jesus to shine through them. And so an unwillingness, all right, bring this home to your life, an unwillingness to have a forgiving spirit or an unwillingness to forgive someone who has wronged you when they repent is not reflecting Jesus accurately. It's not showing Jesus to the world. And we can, even if someone doesn't admit they're wrong and ask us for forgiveness, we can still have an unforgiving spirit, and it affects us in a, in a terrible way. When I was living in Tallahassee many years ago, I worked for a pastor there who was very, very difficult, to say the least, to work for. And when I took the job at the church, I was unaware of the culture that existed among the staff and among the pastor and how he related to us. And when I left from, from there to move to Dallas in, in 2000, 1999, I took a lot of that anger and that hurt and that just critical spirit with me. And when I got to Dallas, I thought, you know, I'm moving on. I'm going to minister and forget about what, you know, what happened. But the truth was, it continued to affect my life. In what way? My joy. I was still had effective moments in ministry. But the joy of my life, the best life that I could have for Jesus and for the cross, was being affected by the attitude that I had still remaining toward him, an unwillingness to have a forgiving spirit, even though he never came to me and said, will you forgive me, and I've done this wrong to you. So the ultimate protection against Satan's attacks on us is God's word. As we understand God's word, his promises, as he relays to us his truth through his word, and we allow that to soak into our lives, it changes the way that we live in these very practical ways of how we're going to harbor these attitudes of critical spirit, bitterness, and this forgiving spirit. And so there's so many nuggets of truth in Scripture that allow us and help us and encourage us. And we find many of those right here in verses, verses 5 through 12. Look at verse 5 again. Now, if anyone has caused pain, Paul says, it has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Okay, so what's going on in Corinth here, all right? Traditionally, when a lot of people have interpreted this passage, 
they link this back to 1 Corinthians to a certain individual who is living in this horribly um, sinful relationship with his father's wife. You maybe remember that from your personal study of Corinthians or when we went through it quite a few years ago. And so Paul had written about that, rebuking for not only this, this thing that was going on, but he, he was saying, hey, take action against this guy. Do something about this. But others feel like this was possibly a follow-up dealing with the case of the guy we talked about a few weeks ago who apparently confronted Paul when Paul went to visit. He bullied Paul. He mocked Paul, made fun of Paul, and belittled him. And so Paul is urging this love and forgiveness to be extended to this person who, who specifically and intentionally targeted Paul. And so I think really it fits more to the passage that this is the person that he's referring to. But regardless, there's so much truth that we can take. So whether this was the painful visit where Paul was rejected and retreated, we talked about, or whether he was dealing with this situation, Paul says that to be Christ-like, we have to realize the impact that we can have for the gospel. And as we go through times of disharmony and disunity and in the church and even periods of discipline in the church, when we have to discipline someone, it, it's tough, it's difficult. Look at the words he used. He says it's, a, it, it's painful, he says in this passage. So it's really, really difficult if you've experienced church discipline. We talked about that for those K-groups who are doing sermon follow-up. We talked about that. It's hard, it's difficult. So some form of church discipline had been exercised in Corinth. We know that from this passage. And so Paul is urging, since that man has now repented, it's time for the church to change their attitude toward him. So the discipline served its purpose. The discipline isn't just for discipline's sake. The discipline was for restoration, to restore that person to fellowship. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, for such a one, this punishment by majority is enough. So he says, this is enough. All right, the guy has repented. It's time to accept him back into the fellowship. And I love that God's word is so practical when it comes to these matters because, again, it may look like a small matter that this person here doesn't like that person there because this person offended them five years ago or that woman talks in gossip about this person because of something that happened a year or two ago in this church. We look at those maybe minor matters or isolated matters, but Paul insists that these are very, very big matters because they're strategies that use, is used by the devil to steal our joy and take away our effectiveness for the gospel to stop us from being the city on the hill, the light to the world that we've been called to be. And so Jesus lays out for us a very clear method for dealing with people when they've sinned against us. Let's look at this as we talk about this idea of forgiveness. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Have you ever done that before? It's tough. It's difficult to do, but it's better than the other options, which is to gossip, cause discord, and just allow bitterness and just, uh, just anger to just rule your life and take over your life. Look what he says in the next step. If he doesn't respond, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you grab a couple people, grab a couple respected people, elders, deacons, those who you know are godly people, and take them with you to confront this situation. 
And then we get to verse 17 when it comes to a matter of the entire church. Apparently, this is what happened in the church at Corinth. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And what he's saying is, this person in our eyes is like an unbeliever. We still love them, but we treat them at arm's length. We understand that we cannot allow them to permeate and, and, and to allow their sin to come into the fellowship and affect other people and make their case and state their case to those around them. And so true evidence of love is this idea of discipline and confrontation, although we think sometimes it's not very loving and it's not the thing to do, and we're hesitant to do it. But we know the outcome for any parent in here that chooses to not to discipline your children when they're being disobedient and bad, what happens is that we're not showing love to them in that situation. That's the most unloving thing we can do is to ignore it. But some people under this idea of, oh, I love my kid too much to, to discipline them, they use that as an excuse. But loving parents discipline their children, and that's true for the body of Christ. And that's why when Larry was up here, one of the things that we say during that membership interview and we uh, affirm that here and he spoke to it on the screen do you promise to uphold purity and unity in the church submitting yourself to its leadership and discipline and that's not just something we just go through the motions in the membership class that's something that's serious because we have a responsibility corporately individually to reflect Jesus Christ to our community and to the world and when we allow sin to permeate and to take hold of our our body it affects what God's called us to do. The whole reason why we're left here on earth was just to reflect him and bring glory to Jesus Christ. And so most situations that I've encountered during my time here at Grace have been handled in that first stage where you just go to that person and talk to them. And usually it's done. But again, the church in Corinth, it got to the place where this is now, it's been necessary to bring discipline by the majority. And so the majority of the church Thank goodness it presented a united front, which is oftentimes hard in these situations. And they showed the offender the seriousness of their sin. And this isolation and this discipline apparently worked because the man repented. That was the great thing. He, he came to his senses. He repented. So Paul adds in verse 7, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so to forgive and to bring comfort to this man would be to shine the light of the gospel in this situation. They're being led by the Spirit when they say it's time now to receive this brother back, restore him, and allow him to, once again to fellowship with this community. And that's what the Holy Spirit was leading them to do, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus on the cross, the gospel. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's the attitude that we need to have when it comes to forgiveness. And I think, and, and this, is, this is really good for me as I was studying, because I think I can buy into the, the false reality in this pop psychology that forgiveness is pretty much about me. It's not about the relationship. And I read this in, on the website Got Questions, which is a really, really good website to provide answers to a lot of biblical questions. And it says this. It says, modern pop psychology has wrongly taught that forgiveness is one-sided, that reconciliation is unnecessary, and the purpose of this unilateral forgiveness is to free the offended person of feelings of bitterness. And so what we do is we make that all about ourselves, right? 
someone in the church has done something to you, and as a result, you lack trust or you've lost, lost respect for them, but you never say a word to them. You never, ever talk to them about it. You never go to them as Jesus instructed, but you see that your life is being affected by it, and you may deny it and say it's not, but you're quick to bring it up, and if that person's name comes, you know in your heart all of a sudden it just grips you and that you feel anger toward this person because you've never followed what Jesus said in this situation to go and to talk to your brother and try to restore them and restore this relationship. But we got to this point where it's just about us. Oh, I'm just releasing them. I'm letting them go because I'm going to be healed and I'm going to be better. But you never take the step, which is reconciliation and forgiveness, which is really what it's, the intention is to restore that fellowship so the body functions the way the body should function. You see? So you make this a very self-centered thing rather than for the good of the body, the good of the community. Now, one thing I'm not saying here, listen carefully, is every time you've been offended, you should run to a person and say, you didn't speak to me today. What's wrong with you? Are you, you got a problem with me, right? And some people do that. They're so sensitive, and every time they feel a little bit slighted, they have to go and confront and make big deals over everything. And so that's not what we're talking about here. But I think what we're talking about here is when it truly, when you say, I'm avoiding that K group because I don't like that person, right? Uh, I, 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 what they did, I'm just not being around them, right? I'm not ministered to them. If they're on this side of the room for OCC, I'm on that side of the room, right? I don't want any chance that we could be connecting to one another. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. And the light of the gospel does not shine through your relationship. And so I love what Chris Braun says in the book, Unpacking Forgiveness. He writes this. He says, gives us this definition. A commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not always, not all the consequences are necessarily eliminated. So there's a good definition of what forgiveness looks like. It doesn't mean that you forget the offense, and it doesn't mean that you just take the person back into um, to, to your life to have influence over your life. That's not what I'm saying either. If someone, let's say somebody's in church leadership, and they commit a sin or they have something in their life, you don't just say, oh, Okay, he repents, we forgive. Okay, you're back on the team, right? You're back in leadership. No, there's consequences, definitely, for these sins that happen. But what I'm talking about here is an attitude of forgiveness that doesn't allow these things to begin to destroy the fellowship of our church. And look, on a personal level, if you're waiting for a feeling in order for you to get to that place where you're going to go to that person, then you're missing the point that forgiveness is a matter of the will. It's a matter of choosing and it's not an absence of pain, but it's the presence of grace in your life, God's grace working because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And as a result of that change in your heart, then you can extend that grace to other people. And so just because you forgive someone, again, doesn't mean all the pain will go away, right? It doesn't. It doesn't go away. It won't leave you automatically. So Paul says you should rather turn to forgive and to comfort. So Paul says this word forgive, it's derived from the root word, which is grace, just showing grace. And then the word comfort, you should be familiar with that from our study in John, the comforter. And we talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about the God of all comfort. God is, brings comfort. That means to come alongside, to come alongside that person, offer grace to that person. And so this is not about making someone feel comfortable for their sins and what they've done wrong. It's about accepting back that person who has repented and shown this godly sorrow. And so we don't treat people like a spiritual leper after they repent. We 
accept them back into the body. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have time or it comes time to practice it, right? We love it until we have to show it. It's very, very difficult. It's, it's, it's tough. And unfortunately, we do most of the time wait for those feelings and they won't come. So it's important to recognize that, that forgiveness doesn't mean everything is forgotten again. One commentator, again, kind of pointed this out about you know, those who are in positions of influence or leadership, that you don't just reinstate them, even though you can restate them into fellowship in general. And then look at verse 8. Paul says, I want you to just pour on the love to this guy. He says, so I beg, look at the word, I beg you to reaffirm your love to him. And Paul had a choice of many Greek words here to pick from when he said to love this guy. Some of you know this, there's between six and eight words in the Greek for love, um, depending on which story you read. But Paul uses the word agape. And even to the Greeks, this was a radical form of love. It's not something you feel necessarily. It's something you choose to do. In the New Testament, agape refers to covenant love. It's unconditional love that God has for us. And so agape love doesn't keep score, Scripture tells us. It's a choice of the will. When we're energized by the Spirit, we see grace and we're willing to go and to act upon that. And so Paul says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Go to him. Reaffirm your love. Accept him back. Verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And so Paul is probably referring back to the severe letter that we talked about here, the letter that we don't have a copy of, but the severe letter where he wrote them after he left from his painful visit and in the severe letter, he told them they needed to bring discipline to this man. And that's why I believe that, and you'll see in verse 10, uh, that's why I believe it's not the guy from 1 Corinthians, but it's this person who bullied Paul during his visit. But Paul says here that he wrote this letter telling the tr church to correct this person, to take action, to discipline them. So this was a test for them, Paul says. They passed the test. They passed the test. They brought the discipline. That's hard to do, especially in a church that was so messed up like Corinth, Right? to get together, present this united front, and bring this discipline. They showed that they were growing in the gospel. They'd not arrived. They hadn't reached the, the point where every area of their life was in the right shape it should be, but they were mature enough in this point where they realized they must bring this church discipline, and they need to obey what Paul said, and they obeyed. Here at verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And so again, this verse is the clearest evidence that this entire offense was basically a personal attack and rebellion against Paul himself. And so there was a need for Paul's personal forgiveness in this situation. Whereas in the other situation, it wasn't about Paul, but this situation, it's about Paul, but Paul doesn't make it about himself. He's much more concerned with the church and the unity within the church than he is about his own feelings of being offended and being run out of town, so to speak. And so some of us tend to think everything personally, you know, and, and disrupt the church community with every little thing. Paul is saying, look, I can be a bigger person in this situation. I care more about the unity than I do about myself. And so he refuses to allow his pride to get in the way of the situation. He expected the Corinthian church and the Christians there to take the lead in showing this man forgiveness and reconciliation. And I love how the message paraphrase of the Bible 
writes these two verses, verses 9 and 10. It'll be on the screen for you, too, to follow along, I believe. It says, the focus of my letter wasn't on punishing the offender, but on getting you to take responsibility for the health of the church. So if you forgive him, I forgive him. Don't think I'm carrying around a a list of personal grudges. The fact is that I'm joining in with your forgiveness as Christ is with me guiding us. So Paul says, here it is. I was offended. It's impacting the church. Do something about it. And they did. They took action. They disciplined this man. This man repented. He came back and he said, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I brought into the church. And some of the people were like, sorry, you're going to have to keep paying for that sin. And Paul says, no, 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 hold on. It's time to forgive. In fact, I beg you, go. Show love to this person. Restore this person. The late pastor Ray Stedman, when he writes about forgiveness, he wrote about three different individuals that we need to make promises to during this whole process of forgiveness. I thought this was so good. He said, first of all, it's a promise that you make to the individual who has offended you and has now repented, in which you are saying to him or her, I will not let my attitude toward you be governed any longer by this offense. Isn't that great? I'm just not going to allow it. It's a choice of my will. I'm not going to be deceived by Satan and outwitted by Satan in this. I'm making a choice to no longer be governed by this. I'm going to choose to love you and to accept you back fully. The second is a promise to the community. It's a promise not to keep passing this information on to everyone else. I'm not going to burden the church and create disunity because of this situation I'm dealing with. And this stuff is is so practical, and and it's so real to everyday life. And and let's don't think that we're dealing with this stuff because it's just good stuff, right? This is critical. This is the way Satan uses tactics to destroy the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. The church is his hands, his feet, his eyes. It's his tone. It's his speech. The church is, he is not going to come down here and do what he's called us to do, which is to go into all the world and and spread the gospel, give the gospel. He's called us to do that. And so we're walking around with anger and bitterness because we're unwilling to go and to speak and confront a, a situation, then we're causing disharmony and reflecting Jesus very poorly. So don't spread it around the community. The third thing is a promise to yourself that when the memory comes back to you and it will come back to you, you're not going to allow it to seize hold of your heart and make you angry all over again. And that's very possible, right? In, these, in this flesh, in these bodies, right, we can forgive, restore, and then we still just struggle. But we can make a choice. This person's repented. I'm going to treat them the way Jesus treats me. Forgiveness, it's a big deal. And if we harbor this, it sets us up for spiritual defeat. It hurts the body. And we've got to know our enemy, that he is working to destroy our church. He's working to destroy the name of Jesus. Do you believe that, honestly? See, it's easy because we come here and we do this every single week. And it's begin, it, you can begin to feel like, oh, this is just what we do. This is church. This is the, you know, just what we do in our, our, our lives and our, just our normal routines. And we just mindlessly go through the business of attending church, forgetting that the dyna- dynamics the love or lack of love therein that we have for one another reveals something about Jesus Christ to this world and to those around us. And so how are you responding? 
in these relationships. And maybe you think, well, everything's good right now. I don't really have any issues, no problems. If you engage in the body of Christ, it's only a matter of time before you will, right? Because everybody in this room, thank God, isn't spiritually mature. Why do I say that? Because we should be reaching out to people who aren't spiritually mature. Like if we're not reaching out to our neighbors and friends and telling them about Jesus and people coming to Christ, then we're not doing our job that Jesus has commanded us to do. And so people come in who are baby Christians, who are exploring the gospel, or they have just learned about the gospel, or they just accepted the gospel. The person doesn't have a clue how they should act in these situations. They haven't been trained in this. You've been sitting under gospel preaching and reading your Bible for years and years and years. And so your reflection, and they should see us operating correctly, and there's going to be some people in this room who are not there yet, and so they're not going to respond the way that they should respond. And even those who have maybe been walking with God for years, I mean, we know we can quickly get in the flesh and not represent Jesus very well. And so Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so the light of the glorious gospel will be hidden from them. That's the, the head application we have to walk away with, that Satan is working to blind people's eyes to the gospel. And so when we harbor and hold back and, and don't have this forgiving spirit, we're working with Satan. I mean, Satan's like, hey, I'll recruit you to help me. Sure, if you want to have this attitude, come along. We'll work together in the church, and we'll make this happen. We'll, we'll cause disunity and problems. Join my team, right? Really, really sad. So do you have a forgiving spirit? And then finally, the hands application. we got to preach the gospel to ourselves. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. I can assure you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus has forgiven you much more than that guy over there has offended you and what you have to forgive him. You've offended Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, as we sang earlier. Alienated from God, deserving of wrath, rightly destined for hell for eternal separation. But Jesus, right? But Jesus came. And so we thank him for the cross. We see God. Thank you, God, for accepting me because of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yet, why can we turn around and be unkind to one another, hard-hearted, refusing to forgive one another? Because why? We don't have our eyes on Jesus, plain and simple. As God in Christ forgave you, you can forgive. That's what God does for you. He changes you from the inside out. He makes you where you want to choose forgiveness. And when you don't, you're the miserable one. You're the one that's struggling because the Holy Spirit is saying, please, John, forgive. Please forgive. Have a forgiving spirit. Accept them back. Accept them back into fellowship. And so as believers... We want to point to the superior satisfaction that exists in Jesus when we live according to the way that he's called us to live. Let's pray. Father God, your word is true and it brings light to our lives. And God, I pray that you will help us not to make this all about ourselves, but to see that we're a body working together in harmony together in unison to present to the world an accurate picture of Jesus Christ. And God, when the hand isn't operating the way it should, the foot suffers. And God, I pray you'll help those in here who are harboring attitudes of, of a critical spirit 
and just being willing, unwilling to forgive or have a spirit of forgiveness, God, I pray you'll convict them and help them to see the damage they're doing to the name of Jesus and to themselves. And God, I pray that you'll help us to be a body that functions according to the way you called us to function. Help us to be a light to the world, a city on the hill that cannot hide our light. God, help us to lift it up for this community and all the world to see. In Jesus' name.